0: Three months ago today, a 22-year-old woman, Ms. Masajina Amini, was killed at the hands of Iran's so-called morality police. Astonishingly, against the savage brutality of this regime, brave Iranian women and men have continued their protests
1: since. And the Iranians, and that expression of dissent is uh, the most important cultural transformation I believe that has happened since the 1979 revolution. And I do believe that it has to, it's in genealogy, it goes back to that 1979 revolution. That once, once a nation, once a subject asserts itself and demands to be recognized and demands respect, then it's very, very hard to push that subject back into a box. And say that, no, you do what, what I tell you to do in the late 1960s, 1970s in Iran. If you ask any uh, primary school kid uh, what happened to Irma Sadr, they would say that the CIA toppled Mossadegh. But it left a very, very deep mark on Iranian psyche that uh, denied uh, the Shah's monarchy legitimacy. Ah. And that that stain remained with the Shah. Khomeini was very extremely marginal in the uh, Iranian seminaries. He was not a well-respected uh, jurist or theologian, and the great majority of significant ayatollahs or what they call the sources of emulation, despised Khomeini when the students took over American embassy, they wanted to show that they are as anti imperialist as anybody in the political landscape in Iran. And uh, many of these students, I knew them, I, at the time I was a student at the Polytechnic University uh, in Tehran. And uh, uh, most of the members of the leadership of that students who took over the embassy came from Polytechnic University. So I knew them pretty well. I mean, this is the interesting part. Not only didn't um, Iranian people had no idea when they were voting Islamic Republic, the leaders themselves didn't have any idea. <laughs> what do you mean Omey- by that? Khomeini didn't have any idea. What exactly was an Islamic Republic?
0: Did you know that Mr. Khomeini's slogan for Iran was independence, freedom, and Islamic rule? But after he was exiled to Paris and was the subject of scrutiny by Western media, he changed his slogan from Islamic rule to an Islamic republic. The trouble was then, as it continues to be now, that in a republic, the source of legitimacy is the people, but in Islam, the source of legitimacy is the divine. So how can this dichotomy be reconciled? That question has created conflicts in post-revolutionary Iran from the very beginning. For example, immediately after the 1979 revolution, members of Iran's clergy had no idea how to go about writing an Islamic constitution for a republic. Hey there news peelers. Today is December 16, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this Peel the History Behind News. The histories of many countries we read, watch and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's and China's histories. And of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee, or your favorite drink, and let's get into it. According to The Guardian, a British daily newspaper, just this past week, Ayatollah Khomeini's own sister, whose daughter was arrested last month in Iran, spoke against her brother's rule, calling it a despotic caliphate. In addition, Iran's former president, Mr. Mohammed Khatami, recently supported the protests. In the context of Iranian politics, Mr. Khatami is considered a moderate. Although Iran's regime has used brute force, viciousness and violence in the last three months to suppress the protests, it is also desperately trying to show some semblance of moderation. For example, it recently abolished the morality police, but that has really impressed no one. Interestingly, Iran's government has also attempted to appeal to high-ranking moderates, For example, it secretly reached out to the families of Ayatollahs Khomeini and Rafsanjani, founding families of the Islamic Republic of Iran, to speak out publicly and help calm the unrest. Both founding families refused to do so. This week, the Wall Street Journal carried an article with the following attention-grabbing headline: Iran's Islamic leaders face a crisis of faith as protests swell. The thrust of this article is that Iranians. Are becoming more secular, more anti religious, and more anti clerical. With respect to the last point, you can find plenty of videos online that show young Iranians running behind members of the clergy and slapping their turbans off their heads. Back in October, just a couple of weeks after the protests started, I produced an episode with Dr. Nahma Sohrabi in which we talked about the Iranians of the 1979 revolution. I asked her, was it an Islamic revolution? She answered, no, it was not. And that answer comports with my own childhood memory of the revolution, which I also shared in the opening remarks of that episode. But here's the thing. If Iran's 1979 revolution was not, was not an Islamic revolution, then why did Iranians vote just two months after the revolution to transform Iran into an Islamic republic? and then eight months later, in a second referendum, they voted to approve a theocratic constitution. According to a prior guest of this program, Dr. Janet Afari, Iran's society has significantly changed since 1979, so much so that it is simply ridiculous for Iran's current octogenarian leaders to insist on the hijab and other supposedly Islamic precepts and policies. My guest for this episode, Dr. Behrouzal Tabrizi of Princeton University, offers yet another explanation, which I won't spoil for you here before we get into it. He also talks about America's involvement in Iran, from the 1953 CIA coup d'etat to the 1979 hostage crisis. I ask him, did President Carter want to remove the Shah, to perhaps replace him with a less ambitious leader? That question and others like it are so important as we are stuck in this intractable state of perpetual conflict with Iran, and as Iran every so often accuses the. US of interfering in its internal affairs, such as the case of this week. After the passage of a. US- back resolution, Iran was removed from the remainder of its four-year term from the Commission on the Status of Women, which is a United Nations Women's Rights Agency. It's the first time that a country has been kicked out of such a commission. No doubt, Iran accused the U.S. of interfering in its domestic affairs. Dr. Kamali Tabriza is a professor and chair of the Department of Near East Studies at Princeton University, where he is also the director of the Sharman and Bijan Mossad Rahmani Center for Iran and Persian Gulf Studies. He has written extensively on the topics of Iran, the Iranian Revolution, Social theory and Islamist political thought in different journals and book chapters. Currently, he's working on a project, a mystical modernity, a comparative study of philosophy of history and political theory, of Walter Benjamin and Ali Shariati. He's the author of three books on different aspects and historical contexts of the 1979 Iranian Revolution and its aftermath. Here are their titles: Islam and dissent in post-revolutionary Iran. Another book is Foucault in Iran, Islamic Revolution after the Entitlement. And his third book is titled, Remembering Akbar, Inside the Iranian Revolution. To learn more about Dr. Kamari Tabrizi, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you are there, click the link to a revolutionary song by Iranian women. They sing about hope. They sing that we are all in this together. So don't be afraid. They sing for the freedom to sing, dance, and kiss in the streets. I'm not interpreting here. I'm literally translating. They use the word laughter. They use the word happiness. It's an amazing song that I also discuss with Dr. Kamari Tabrizi. By the way, please distribute this song to your friends and relatives and let them hear the voices of the Iranian women. Stay with me as Dr. Kamari Tabrizi and I peel the history behind this news. Uh, Dr. Qamari Tabrizi, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Let's begin with what I think was a transformative event in Iran's modern history, the 1953 coup d'etat. Could you please uh, briefly tell us about this history?
1: Yeah, Uh, the 1953 coup in Iran it's actually a transformative moment in the uh, global history.
0: Oh, in and, global uh, history, okay.
1: Uh, I truly believe that because uh, you know, first uh, this uh, the coup in Iran was the very first CIA covert operation. The oh, very no. first. Interesting. And uh, <clears throat> and this is the time that uh, the uh, I mean that's the beginning of the Cold War, and uh, the US, the British the Soviets are still trying to sort of define the terms of this kind of cold war. What does it mean? And they're trying to establish a certain kind of proxies for themselves to to fight this cold war. Of course, a lot of people like myself argue that the cold war is such a misnomer. It is? Uh, Why do you say that? Cold war was a very hot war. It was Cold War because it didn't happen on European soil. Ah, interesting. That's why they call it cold. It happened in the rest it's, of the world. It happens in the rest of the world, you know, and, and there are varied estimates that uh, during the Cold War from 1945, 46 to the collapse of the Soviet Union, somewhere between 25 to 30 million people were killed. Wow. In proxy wars, right?
0: That begins to compete with World War II.
1: Yes. Wow. Okay. We're competing with World War One, but uh, because World War II, the casualties were much higher. Okay. But nevertheless, when I say that, this is sort of a misnomer, a Cold War. Yeah. As if, you know, people are fighting over discourses and over different kinds of governmentalities and this and that. But no, there was actual war going on. But since the... <clears throat> since the field of war was moved to outside Europe, it became known as the Cold War.
0: (laughs) So the the term Cold War is very much a Eurocentric, North American-centric sort of term.
1: Absolutely.
0: I see, uh, I see. So the coup
1: in Iran in 1953 uh, had two elements. One element, that's why I said that it's a global significance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One element was the basically shifting of global authority of western empires that's the collapse of the british empire yeah. and the us little by little is stepping into the uh, footprints of british empire yeah and uh, and there's a lot of confusion about the role of the uh, american uh, government after the second world war because many people, even like including Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, uh-huh. they looked up to Americans as an ally because they thought that they thought that the old empire is collapsed and a new sort of democratic force is merging in the world. And, uh, and that's true. Ho Chi I- Minh mean
0: actually even worked with uh, American military forces. Uh,
1: oh, of course, yeah, uh, yeah. Because the Americans positioned themselves as the liberators, not only from fascism, but also from the old colonial powers, the two major ones, the British colonial empire and the French colonial empire. So in Vietnam, the French, and in in the Middle East, the British mostly, also French. So Iranian case was very curious case because uh, Mossadegh wanted to nationalized in the
0: iranian prime minister
1: the the iranian uh, prime minister uh, wanted to nationalize the oil industry because the oil industry i mean you'll be surprised to know that the uh, profits of oil industry in iran which was controlled by the british british petroleum controlled the iranian Mm -hmm. industry was 80 to 20. 80 percent of the profit went to the british 20% went to the Iranian side.
0: Wait, wait, say that again, 80 to 20? How does that even make
1: sense?
0: (laughs) This is the national sort of wealth.
1: (laughs) It didn't make any sense. And uh, basically, (sighs) the Iranian side wanted to renegotiate this kind of very colonial contract. Heck yeah. (laughs) That uh, and obviously, I mean, the argument that would be reasonable for any reasonable person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That this is our resource. This is the oil is under our soil, and you are helping us to dig it out. But it's unfair to have only twenty percent, and that twenty percent, by the way, included paying for the expenses of maintenance of the refineries and all that. So So it's not a
0: 20% net, it's 20% gross. Now they still have to pay. Oh,
1: wow. Okay. And uh, so Mossad uh, nationalized the oil. And of course, you know, oil becomes such a key uh, commodity after the war even before the war, but, but with the rising industrialization around the yeah. world, oil is a key element of this force of industrialization Industrialization around the world. And uh, the British could not basically accept this idea of nationalizing the Iranian oil industry. And, uh, and I know mean, there are a lot of details about this, but, that, uh, but, uh, Dr. but Henry the- Dr. Ghanri Tabrizi, you keep on saying the
0: British. I thought the 1953 coup, Was orchestrated, and I'm jumping ahead here by the U.S. Um, What what am I missing here?
1: That's 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 the point. I was I sort of in my introduction. I said that you know the U.S. uh, had a very kind of a strange position at that time. That Uh that uh, that Mossadegh himself, the Iranian Prime Minister, actually looked up to the Americans and asked them to help him to nationalize oil industry. Okay. and, uh, and the US, there was a conversation uh, in the US and the Truman administration and the Eisenhower administration. Eisenhower suddenly shifted the American position to a more hawkish interventionist kind of position. And the British were basically constantly on the American's case that if Iran nationalizes the oil and Mossadegh, who was a liberal person, uh, controls the political- Not system, a communist. Not a communist at all. I mean, he was actually pretty anti-communist.
0: Okay, good, good, good. So that's clarifying.
1: uh, I don't know whether it was good or not, but...
0: (laughs) 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 No, no, no. I'm just looking at the geopolitics. So they weren't looking at Iran turning communist all of a sudden. Okay, so that's not the case.
1: But this is what... and, And the British basically shifted the conversation about oil to containing the Soviet Union. Yeah. And arguing that Iranian liberal administration will be incapable of containing this expansion of Soviet influence towards the Persian Gulf and the oil industry. And back so, then,
0: the Soviet Union actually bordered Iran. Russia doesn't border Iran anymore, right? In the 1950s, the Soviet Union?
1: Yes. Yeah, right, okay. right, right. And uh, so it was once the British changed the frame of the conversation, and put it in those Cold War-ish frame, then the US, the Americans became very, very involved and interested in um, toppling Mossadegh's administration. Um, It was about the oil, but at the same time, it was about containing the Soviet Union. And in their mind, in Americans' mind, who bought into the British kind of propaganda, uh, Mossadegh, the Iranian prime minister, could not be a force that the Western powers could rely on in order to contain the Soviet Union. So, oh,
0: okay, so the US topples, uh, there's a CIA operation called Operation Ajax, and we won't get into the details, it's history. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. Uh, topples uh, Mossadegh, and there's a, I think, a four or five day period in which the Shah actually flees to Italy and then comes back. Um, so, how relevant was the experience and the memory of the 1953 coup in Iran's 1979 revolution? And, and if I may, please, uh, I'll introduce my own personal perspective here, Dr. Bahman Tabrizi. I vividly recall my father telling me during the 1979 revolution i was just a little boy he was telling me his about his own participation in the pro Mossadegh uh, demonstrations in the 1950s so that's my little corner of uh, the world that's, that's but was was this pervasive prevalent this sort of memory
1: it was very very pervasive i mean, uh, I, mean I i grew up in the late 1960s uh, 1970s in iran And uh, if you ask any uh, primary school kid, uh, what happened during Mossadegh, they would say that the CIA toppled Mossadegh, you know, like it was just given, you know, and that's why when during the Clinton administration, a lot of these documents are declassified about the role of the CIA in the coup in Iran. It was no news in Iran, you know. Like <laughs>
0: we already knew this.
1: Wow, this is not a revelation. You know, we already we already knew this. You know, everybody knew this. You know, and so, uh, it it left it left. I'm sorry, but it left a very very deep mark on Iranian psyche that uh, denied uh, the Shah's monarchy legitimacy, ah. and that that sort of That stain remained with the Shah. uh, Of course, you know he came to power um, twelve years before that coup, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, and for the rest of the twenty five years, that he became the American stooge. You know, he was American puppet because it it it's so hard to shed that kind of perception. Yeah, if you know if. Uh, the Dallas brothers and the Kermit Roosevelt and the CIA—they bring you back from Rome, yeah, to put you on the throne again. You know, like uh, so uh, that really—and the Dallas
0: brothers were remind me, please, sec- the U.S. Secretary of State US under Secretary Eisenhower and, and the head of, of CIA, CIA, okay, of CIA there, yeah.
1: yeah. So, and, and as I'm sitting here speaking to you at the Princeton University, right across me, there is a. Uh, there is a Princeton Library that all the Dallas uh, papers are there. So I can't, oh boy, <laughs> can't... I should come and visit. <laughs> it's, it's right across the street, you know. Like... <laughs> um,
0: let's fast forward a, a, a little bit, a few months in the 1979 revolution. Did the Islamist students takeover mm-hmm. of the US Embassy in Tehran have anything to do with the 1953 coup? I don't know. Was it a sort of a used as an excuse, or what was the narrative there?
1: Uh, you know, the fear after the revolution was, and I I would say uh, was a real fear. It wasn't kind of paranoia. You know, because sometimes people say, "Oh, Iranians are paranoid." You know, <laughs> uh, and it reminds me of uh, you know when. Uh, the I uh, declassified CIA document about Cuba, and uh, and this CIA officer said that uh, Fidel Castro was very paranoid because he constantly thought that the CIA was trying to kill him. I said, Well, the CIA was trying to kill him,
2: <laughs> indeed, <Okay>. 19 <laughs> times they tried oh, to assassinate that's so him. Funny. <laughs> you know, so, so if you so,
1: if you what's if you say, the Iranian you know, fear? Iranian fear was that, you know, the U.S. is going to mount a counter-revolutionary coup. And uh, ah. they, uh, they experienced it before, you know, and, uh, and the U.S. had a lot of invested interest in Iran. Iran was the, Iran had the fifth largest military in the world during the revolution. Wow, and I assume the, most of
0: that was U.S. and perhaps almost, some European. I
1: mean, most of it, like eighty percent of it, was U.S. Uh, military hardware and uh, and arms. Uh, so, so not only the U.S. was the main beneficiary of Iranian oil industry, but also Iran was the number one uh, client of American uh, military industrial complex. Wow, and and. Uh, uh, Saudi's now have taken up that role, you know. Yeah. But yeah. At that time, you don't have the fifth largest military in the world, and um, and uh, it was hard to believe at the time, and I include myself in that crowd, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. It's hard to believe in, during that time that the US is going to sit back and not do anything. Right. Wow. And um, uh, so there wow. was one uh, <clears throat> attempt. To occupy American embassy uh, a few weeks after the revolution, uh, and that. Oh, attempt- I didn't know that. Okay. Yes, uh, it was uh, this uh, leftist, uh, communist, uh, urban guerrilla group called the uh, khalq uh, uh, is, is that
0: M-E-K? or? No,
1: M E K was Mujahideen. These are oh, like oh, okay. Mujahideen were, were Islamist. Uh, this was uh, the, uh, you know, Fada where this guerrilla, uh, urban guerrilla group organization. Okay. Uh, uh, and uh, they actually tried to, uh, they did go inside the embassy and uh, Khomeini and people around Khomeini immediately ordered them to leave the embassy and they didn't want to sort of antagonize the U.S. Um But there was a kind of a, you know, there was also, I think, the left in the. Hopefully, we'll talk about this a little bit later. But the left didn't have that much of an organizational power, but the left had a lot of discursive power. Discursive power. Competition uh, with the uh, ruling state, Islamist state, to show which one is more anti-imperialist, because the left always thought that, you know the communist left thought that they are the sort of the flag bearers of, of anti-imperialists. Like struggles. the paladin,
0: the first of vanguard of anti-imperialism,
1: yeah. then, I see. And then, you know, the, the Islamists also wanted to prove that they also are as anti imperial and if not more, anti-imperialist than the Iranian left. So when the... <clears throat> when the students took over American embassy, we're jumping a little bit ahead, but I'm going to finish this story and please, then please. track back a little bit, you know? Um, and uh, first of all, they wanted to show that they are as anti imperialist as anybody in the political landscape in Iran. And uh, many of these students, I knew them. I, at the time I was a student at the Polytechnic University uh, in Tehran and uh, uh, most of the members of leadership of that students who took over the embassy came from Polytechnic University. So I knew them pretty well. And, uh, and then, you know, they thought that they're going to go inside the embassy and disrupt any attempt that the Americans are planning for a counter-revolutionary coup. It was an attempt for disruption rather than hostage-taking. Wow, that was- okay. So they go inside and this is one of those, you know, mysteries of of, uh, history, you know, like they go inside and they see that they are basically uh, throwing in Tons and tons of documents into these giant shredded shredding machines.
0: Yeah, and shredders weren't all that uh, available in those days. Now every home has a shredder, so that was I know. But these are like and... that
1: these are like industrial scale. Yeah, shredders. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and you wonder that. So why didn't they shred these documents?
0: Before Knowing
1: that there's a revolution going on, you yeah, know, yeah. there's constantly, you know, Especially
0: since there was another and earlier, attempt, I right? yeah, right. yeah,
1: interesting. Huh? So, <laughs> so then it became a curiosity that, you know, so what are these documents? They said that we we're going to put together these uh, shared documents. And day after day after day, suddenly, you know, two, three weeks later, they realized that, oops, you know, we are inside the American embassy with all the embassy employees, and we have created a worldwide crisis, you know.
0: Wow. Interesting. And then uh, uh, Mr. Khomeini never ordered them to leave. Um, Let's follow up this conversation in the next segment. We'll be back after a short break to talk about foreign influence in Iran's 1979 revolution. At the start of these protests in Iran. I asked Dr. Sahrabi, is it a revolution? The answer to this simple question turned out to be rather complex. There's a point after which people's persistent protests turn into a revolution and they then collectively recognize that it is a revolution. And I reckon Iranians have passed that point that we do have a revolution in Iran now. Since this revolution started with the murder of Ms. Massa Amini and has been inspired by women, Dr. Sahrabi told me, just an incredible story. It's of an Iranian woman who rode her motorcycle in the dead of night in the 1970s to distribute revolutionary materials. My conversation with her is the story of the Iranians of the 1979 revolution. Miss Meherza Amini was arrested and later killed because she allegedly didn't properly wear her hijab and the hijab has become a symbol almost a pillar of this so-called Islamic regime in Iran. But here's the irony. <laughs> the hijab did not even come from Islam. Not at all. Dr. Afari explains the history of hijab. The hijab is Persian and perhaps also Byzantian, the two superpowers of the world at the time Islam came onto the scene. In Persia, that is the Sasanian Persian Empire, the hijab belonged to the upper classes. In fact, as late as the late 1800s, Lower-class women, including prostitutes, were prevented from wearing the hijab. Dr. Afari tells a fascinating story of the Iranian women, and she enters the bedrooms of Iranian families, marriage, abortion, and sexual politics. Finally, I have a question for you. Why are Iran and America in a perpetual state of hostilities? This question becomes really interesting when we think of it in the context of the Vietnam War. Even though we fought the North Vietnamese in open warfare and suffered more than 50,000 casualties, after some years we re-established relations with Vietnam. But after the 1979 hostage crisis, which was 43 years ago, we have yet to establish relations with Iran. We don't even talk to them directly. One of my guests, Dr. Vali Nasser, provides a very interesting answer to this question, one that may surprise you. The links to my conversations with Dr. Sohrabi, Afari, and Nasser are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Gamari Tabrizi. Dr. Gamari Tabrizi, many Iranians believe and allege that the US, in fact, wanted to remove the Shah to perhaps replace him with a less ambitious leader in Iran. Uh, How much of this, if any of it, is credible?
1: I don't give much credibility to that narrative. I think this is- You don't, um, okay. This is a uh, revisionist history that, that uh, puts so much emphasis on uh, Carter administration's decisions, uh, and uh, and uh, forgets the <laughs> that that kind of revisionism forgets the the all out power of this revolutionary movement, and frankly, the impossibility of containing it. I think the U.S. at some point realizes that this is a losing battle. I think that's true. But the U.S. realizes that that meaning saving the Shah was a losing battle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, But that realization, I think, comes uh, just a few weeks before the final victory of the revolution.
0: Oh, wow, way late.
1: Very late. Uh, and uh, this happens when... Uh, uh, Jimmy Carter sends General Heuser to Tehran. Uh, and then in Guadeloupe, they have a meeting with the uh, the French, the Germans, and to decide what to do. And at that point, this is January of 1979. The uh,
0: month before sort of the culmination. Before of... The, yeah. Oh, a, wow, okay. I mean,
1: at that point. It was foregone conclusion that the shah could not withstand the force of this revolutionary movement uh-huh. and, uh, and uh and the u.s basically uh, their carter policy and the state there were a lot of i mean we can't go into details of the differences in in the state department and and the defense department all those things were true, but, but the, the bottom line for, for the Americans was that how to limit the damage. And the damage that was going to be inflicted in, uh, on U.S. interest in Iran was one, uh, the integrity of the Iranian military. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned earlier, fifth largest military in the world. Number one client of American um, arms, and two, the flow of oil. Because American, you know, they have already experienced this kind of oil crisis in the U.S., and they thought that they can. Yeah, withstand- nineteen
0: seventy-three, right? The Arab right. embargo. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. And they thought that they can withstand another oil crisis like yeah. that, and uh, so. In Guadalupe, they decided to open a channel to Khomeini. And uh, and that channel to Khomeini, actually the declassified documents came out a couple of years ago. That in those documents, it clearly shows that uh, the direct contact between the US and Khomeini in Paris had basically two items. And Khomeini guaranteed in their conversation that they are not going to dissolve Iranian military, and the flow of oil would continue to Western powers. And Khomeini guaranteed it. And it's only at that point that they realized that, okay, they can basically rest assured that if Shah leaves Iran, then their... Two main concerns would be met by the new government right? um, did
0: <laughs> did general heiser uh, ever? Tell the Iranian military to stand down. I hate asking that question. It just makes yeah. uh, makes it makes Iranians sound like they have no agency in what they yes. do, uh, their own yeah. destiny. But um, but but yeah. let me just go back to the question. So, was there any sort of mandate for General Heiser to say to to suggest to the Iranian generals stand down?
1: Yeah, I mean, Heiser's mandate was to uh, uh, make sure that the military remains intact okay at the time that that he goes to iran there is martial law in iran and the martial law pretty much in practice is violated and and had had become meaningless because people constantly are breaking the martial law martial law was that you you can't have uh, congregations of three or more people at at any given time <laughs> but, <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of people <laughs> demonstrating. So it was a martial <laughs> you know, law without any enforcement,
0: without any Veni, teeth. Veni.
1: And and of course, you know, his assessment. It is true that that he he thought that the Iranian the the military has shown that it's not capable of preventing uh, these uh, protests, these rallies, these demonstrations, and it's basically. If they open fire, I mean, that's a basically the $64,000 question. Yeah. What would you do if if suddenly 200,000 people are marching? I mean, there are marches of 2 million people. Yeah. But if, if like 100,000, 150,000 people are marching, what would the military do? Are they going to shoot them? You know, they tried it once, right? Yeah. In, uh, in September of 1978, they tried it the very first day of uh, martial law. And it was a disaster. And on that day, <laughs> they signed off their own demise because you know no regime can survive if in one day you kill hundreds of people. You know, it's it's hard. At least you know you. Yeah. Um, and of course, at the time, the rumor was that you know four thousand, ten thousand people were killed. And it turned out that you you know it was like around seventy people who were killed. Yeah. But but. Who cares for, for for reality? If there is a revolutionary movement and there is a rumor that 10,000 people were killed, people would operationalize that 10,000 number. You, you need know, the power of
0: propaganda for the revolution, yeah, right?
1: propaganda.
0: You know, uh, you know talking about uh, Heiser or um, mm-hmm. President Carter, it takes me to two narratives about the last days of the Shah that just fascinate me. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, that the Shah was chronically paralyzed by yeah. indecisiveness and sort of flip-flopping in his policies. And second, and somewhat, I guess, you know, I haven't lived in Iran for decades. I was there as a boy. It's, it's embarrassing for me to even say this: that the king of Iran so greatly just was consumed with what the West thinks about him or the tumults in Iran. Before we go to those these narratives are these historically correct what those two narratives that i share with you
1: i think so yes okay Uh, and um the shah the last uh four years three four three to four years of the shah shah was a changed man
0: in what sense
1: um he uh had different kinds of ambitions in mind. And I don't think that those ambitions were necessarily uh, anything that the Western powers would say, okay, we have to stop him because that narrative that they say, oh, the U.S. wanted to remove the Shah. Yeah, okay. I don't think it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of ambition that would uh, worry the Western powers, you know, but, uh, you know, with uh, changing the Iranian calendar, Islamic calendar to a monarchical calendar he absor- uh, uh, so iran's
0: calendars suddenly became from like 1400 years or something went to 2500 years 2500 from years. the coronation yeah. of cyrus the great or- cyrus, right. okay okay okay
1: and uh, and um, and uh, and that's sort of the sort of the change in his personality starts from those celebrations of 25 25- 100 years of monarchy and Persian empire. So the idea of Persian empire, this is kind of, I I think he was getting into that kind of mode of reviving Persian empire. In his mind, he had a mission to uh, reinvent the glory of Persian empire. And that Persian empire, again, was not necessarily something anti-West or something that would basically um, undermine Americans' interest in the region. It was something that could, could coexist with uh, with uh, with the American interest in the region. So I don't think the U.S. was so worried about this ambition because, yeah. okay, that he had that ambition so long as he buys his military <laughs> arms. <laughs> his uh, weapons from us. Oh, that's fine, you know. But at the same time, I wanted to also say this, that um during the revolutionary movement, the last year of his rule, um, as we know, uh, later we found out that, that he was suffering from cancer, and uh, at some point, I think he realized that his cancer is terminal. Then, you know, the situation changed, and uh, and he became very indecisive. He became very erratic. He became so worried about his legacy because he was facing death. And uh, and in that context, uh, on the one hand, he was blaming the Americans. On the other hand, he constantly was in touch with the American embassy to ask for guidance. You know, I, I want to just interrupt you, if I may, please, that last comment that you made, mm-hmm.
0: calling the American embassy for guidance. Uh, mm-hmm. Iran was full of generals and diplomats and statesmen. Right. Was he... Leaning more towards foreign counsel or or is that just something that we've picked up in history?
1: Um, no, I think I think that that's that's a sign of his confusion, I think. Uh, he's relying on his advisors and his advisors also are relying on the advice of of Americans. You know, I think this is it, it becomes very hard to sort of draw a line between local agents and foreign agents yeah because all the local agents are trained by the foreign agents you know interesting and uh, and they they are their are friends they 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 went to the same military school together they you know they uh, know that each other's families and uh, so it's hard to sort of make that kind of distinction uh, which I know that a lot of these revisionist narratives make that kind of distinction between local agents and those local agents are military uh, generals and uh, and the heads of Iranian security, Savak, and all those and and then foreign advisors. and these are kind of uh, I think we 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 need to look at them as in a continuum rather than two sides of of. Uh, of sources of advice interesting
0: um you talked about the last four or five years or perhaps the last uh decade of the law that the shah's reign in the 1970s Um, one thing that i that i remember as a child um i didn't appreciate it then now i do i remember maybe it's a small point but please help me along here i remember many streets in iran were named uh eisenhower uh kennedy those are all the only two i remember um um, um, and roosevelt yeah and roosevelt oh oh, there you go yes yes um i'm I'm sure those names are not there anymore but is that something that came from the shah named this street i mean you don't see streets named, uh you know emmanuel Macron here in washington Mm -hmm. dc or anything like that um is that something that came from the shah or is why would that be
1: yeah I, mean, I i don't know whether the shah directly w- was involved in naming these streets but but that was the air you know. That, that was that was in the air you know like the uh, tehran municipality tehran mayor these are all people who come from the same kind of hierarchy and uh, uh-huh. and uh, and it was given that that in so many different ways uh, they needed to show their uh, uh, allegiances, their their commitments to a certain kind of direction in history, a certain kind of political ideology, and and these are these are the ways that they show it. You know that uh, you know the main uh, uh, East West Street uh, in Tehran was called Eisenhower, and uh, a very sort of affluent neighborhood in uh, Tehran Roosevelt, and then there was a uh, possibly the first highway that went through Tehran was called Kennedy um and uh, and uh, Kennedy square was a sort of a major sort of hub of hanging out and all that um and uh, and uh, yeah but these are kind of you know these are symbolic of course you know and uh, and uh, is a constant reminder you know like uh, the way uh, um we think about Benedict Anderson's imagined communities that how nations create this kind of memory of themselves, you know, yeah. and uh, through museums, through buildings, from stamps, you know, from, from, yeah, uh, you know.
0: There are probably also signs that show that in the Cold War, and I'm using quotation marks for that after mm-hmm. learning from you uh, the misnomer here, in the Cold War world we lean more to the us by even here are the names of our right. streets right. that are after american presence right. we'll be back after a short break to talk about the revolution's immediate aftermath
2: we hope you are enjoying this podcast and if you are then why not treat us to a cup of coffee That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you.
0: Dr. Ghanai Tabrizi, I often hear that Iran's 1979 revolution was not an Islamic revolution. And I happen to agree with it, no doubt, because of my own limited experience and sort of faded memory of that time. But, um... How do we reconcile this with the results of a 1979 referendum in which an overwhelming majority of Iranians did, in fact, vote to transform Iran
1: (laughs) into an Islamic republic? Right, right. Uh, I think... I mean, in my own work, uh, I go back and forth between calling Iranian revolution, Islamic revolution or Iranian revolution or the revolution (laughs) of 1979, uh, because sometimes I I don't want to get involved in this kind of uh, semantics of it. But I think in its spirit, this was an Islamic revolution, Islamic, not in the sense that It's very unfortunate that uh, in post-revolutionary, after 1979, we have the rise of Islamic fundamentalism. Uh, And then that Islamic fundamentalism is projected back to the Iranian revolution as the point of origin of it. while the that kind of political islam that uh, was operating operating during the islamic revolution in iran was fundamentally different from that kind of islamic fundamentalism that emerges uh, primarily through the uh, afghan mujahideen fighting the soviets and and uh, so on and so forth but but it's very important th- the way i use islamic revolution I have in mind something like um, Catholic liberation theology rather than f- Islamic Christian fundamentalism. They they had a- You very, lost
0: me there. I don't follow you. Catholic li- well, liberation theology? Liberation
1: theology, uh-huh. you know, like in Nicaragua, in, in El Salvador. Like these are sort of revolutionary, emancipatory kind of ways of thinking about religion and saying that, you know, they're moving away from those old sort of structures of religion, very hierarchical, very mm-hmm. rigid, very kind of uh, patriarchal, Very all these things that they want to, you know, it comes from Central America and Latin America. Yeah. To, to say that, you know, uh, religion at its core is a worldview about justice and emancipation. And oh, wow. that's, that's a profound statement. Okay. That's the kind of Islamic ideology that led the Iranian Revolution. And that ideology was very much informed by liberation struggles around the world. Iranian Revolution was much more influenced by. Algerian Revolution, Franz Fanon from MS Cesaire and Ali Shariati, who was one of their interlocutors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Than anything that we hear about, like Osama bin Laden and, and of all course, people. yeah. So, So, this is a very different kind of trajectory and different kinds of appropriation of religion. Into political discourse. So when Iranians voted in 1979
0: uh, in, in the referendum to turn Iran into um, an Islamic republic, um, let me run with this and tell me yeah. if, if 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 I'm getting this correctly. Did they have in mind an idea of? an Islam that's sort of liberating anti-imperialist. I, 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 I wanna venture to say that they didn't have in mind, perhaps a majority of them, of uh, turbans on TV all day long. No, no. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> Absolutely not. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, not only, I mean, this is the interesting part. Not only didn't um, Iranian people had no idea when they were voting Islamic Republic, the leaders themselves didn't have any idea. <laughs> what do you mean Khomeini, by that? Khomeini didn't have any idea what exactly was an Islamic republic because it was a neologism, right? I mean, this is like people say that why didn't we read Khomeini's velayat e Faqih* his book on Islamic governance? Okay, you could read his book, nothing would have changed <laughs> having read his book because well you say would would you not
0: know more about his ideology had you read his book well
1: i mean because it's it was very ambiguous ah. and uh, and that ambiguity operated to a certain degree uh, at all levels at levels of people on the street and at the level of leaders of the revolution when khomeini was uh, uh, kicked out of. Uh, Khomeini was in exile in Iraq for uh, uh, for more than a decade. In the city of Najaf, which is a Shia sort of. Um... And the Shah basically pushed uh, Iraqis to kick Khomeini out, perhaps strategically the worst mistake of, of <laughs> that was uh, a mistake he went to france and he had more freedom all of a sudden so, yeah suddenly <laughs> he at the center of the global media at the time you know yeah, like, yeah. instead of sitting in najaf and talking to xyz he's sitting in uh, paris uh, talking, talking to Michael wallace and, and peter jennings and, and bbc people, yeah you know wow. so but there you know I, I always say that one point that people forget that it's only in Paris that Khomeini says, uh, up to that point, he said that uh, the revolution was uh, independence, freedom, and Islamic rule, right? Uh-huh. In Paris, he said that, no, this is Islamic Republic, right? So independence, so, freedom, freedom. And a republic. Uh... And a republic. And actually, uh, the first interview he gave with the Le Monde uh, um, reporter, and uh, the Le Monde reporter actually asked him, what do you mean by republic? And Khomeini said, like, all other republics, like, don't you have a republic here? We will have a republic, you know. So republicanism. That sounds so benign. But republicanism is a neologism, right? I mean, for, for, for his political philosophy. I mean, we don't have... Republicanism because it generates a fundamental uh, contradiction because republicanism is about the source of legitimacy which is it's the constituents this is the people yeah and uh, and Islam <laughs> uh, the source of legitimacy is the divine you know and how do you bring these two together and when I say that this is such an ambiguous thing. And uh, and over and over uh, again, Khomeini talks about the significance of uh, sovereignty of people in determining their own destiny. You know? That sounds so good, doesn't it? No, of course. I mean, of I, I mean, why then so many millions of people were following him? Because he was saying all the right things. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. And of course, people say that we were all duped right <laughs> and uh, and Khomeini nobody i don't think uh, Khomeini was trying to dupe anybody uh, if he was trying to dupe anybody he himself he was included in that crowd he was duped because so he, are you saying that he has certain
0: ideology then he goes to paris and you know i'm not trying to follow a chronology forget forget that part yeah. what i'm saying is he was sort of kind of figuring it out weaving That's it together right. as he was going through Absolutely. This was such a colossal yes. uh, event that he was also trying yes. to put together. Yes, yes.
1: Um, yes of, let me, just, let me, let me just say a word uh, here because please you please. said it so nicely. Um, and uh, I think the difference between my own scholarship and others, uh, many others, I mean, there are so many, other, I respect their scholarship, is that I don't think that Khomeini had a blueprint and was planning how to implement that blueprint. Khomeini was shaped, his ideas was shaped by the way the events were unfolding. and he was trying to make sense of all these events and come up with solutions as things happened around him. So it's a much more contingent kind of history the way I see it. and uh, and therefore I, I disagree with people who said that oh he he was duped. He was duping people. You know, we were not duped, you know, because he was trying to figure out himself, you know. I because see from that he, respect, uh, you, know, you know. But but what you're saying is
0: not all that unusual if you read the history of the Russian, uh, um, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, or going further back, the French Revolution. Um, it, it, they just navigated through the events, and I'm not Absolutely. saying this to sort of Absolutely. support uh, Mr. Khomeini or anything like that. It's just that's history. Right. And right. one of the things that I wanted to discuss with you as, as you brought up uh, religion and uh, how Iran's fundamentalist version of religion was fundamentally different than how the revolution started, mm-hmm. is um, there there's one figure in particular, um, Ayatollah, grand Ayatollah, Shariat Madari. And I know him, uh, I know of him, because he was popular in particularly in Northwest Iran, the Azeri, Turkish-speaking people, including my own parents. And he was not in the Khomeini camp. He reluctantly becomes part of Khomeini's camp and is eventually silenced. This is a just a fascinating story how he was one of the really highly respected Shiite clerics yeah. in the world. And he's yeah. put aside.
1: Yeah. Actually, I mean, Shariat Ayatollah Shariat Madari was uh, uh, perhaps the most important figure who basically saved Khomeini's life. Uh, what do you mean? When he was arrested in 1964. In 1964, Khomeini was arrested because of his uh, anti white revolution, anti Shah sermons. Oh, the, the Shah's white revolution. Okay. White revolution. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. Uh huh. And, and uh, shariat madari really advocated uh, on his behalf and instead of jail time they exiled khomeini to to iraq you know so oh wow was, yeah and um, and uh, but khomeini you know that's also another kind of uh, misunderstanding of khomeini's position when i said that he was not like Islamic fundamentalism Khomeini was very extremely marginal in the uh, Iranian seminaries. He was not a well-respected jurist or theologian and the great majority of significant ayatollahs or what they call the sources of emulation despised Khomeini because uh, for, for centuries the dominant political philosophy in, in, inside seminaries was the advocacy of political quietism. They, they didn't want to be involved in politics at all. And Khomeini actually is a, a aberration of, of that kind of philosophy. And he was not really influential. He was extremely influential in younger generation of uh, seminary students. For political reasons, but extremely marginalized in the great establishment of of Shi'i seminaries. But when he comes back to Iran, then none of those sources of emulation or grand ayatollahs have any kind of standing or political capital to stand against him. You know, because he has a whole nation behind him.
0: You know. Oh, interesting. And, and- uh,
1: so Khomeini was, in so many different ways, an exceptional character. He did not, and I want to sort of underline the not part, he did not represent the position of the Shia seminaries. He was an aberration, and he taught classes that nobody would dare to teach when he was in the seminary. There is Such as? Such as, I mean, like on philosophy, for example, or in mysticism. Khomeini was a great mystic and uh, he taught seminars in mysticism and she is always very, very skeptical of mysticism, you know, Interesting. and, and uh, if you, um, uh, uh, a little anecdote would help here. That, uh, when Gorbachev came to power uh, in the Soviet union, <laughs> uh, Khomeini sent a letter to Gorbachev Um uh, by the way, via this uh, very interesting woman who was one of his inner circles, and, and Gorbachev's inner circles, uh, no, in Khomeini's inner, inner circle. circles, okay, and um, and then uh, in that letter, uh, Khomeini says that, you know, I know that you want to change the situation in Soviet Union and you're looking for alternatives. Why don't you look into Islam as an alternative? <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, if you have time, you know, just search this letter, you know, and he said, that you're looking for an alternative. Why don't you look at Islam as an alternative? Send some of your uh, uh, philosophers and scientists to, to Qom, and uh, we'll show you what we can offer and then he names a series of uh, key figures in Islamic history in philosophy and those characters are interesting because like he names names Ibn Arabi who was a sort of very out there mystic that if you say his name in front of any Sunni or Shia Sources of you know Shia sources of ammunition or or Sunni imams they would run scared you know I say okay we don't want to touch that guy you know, and then he says like uh, Avicenna who was a, a rationalist uh, philosopher of uh, of eleventh century and then uh, Al Ghazali who was a mystical philosopher and it's like a mishmash of different kinds of schools of thought in Islamic history and then you wonder that. What is this guy thinking? You know, like, first of <laughs> all, writing to Gorbachev. Second of all, presenting a very kind of a bizarre history of yeah. Islamic philosophy that would no one in a uh, Qom seminary or any other seminary would touch this list as the representative of Islamic philosophy.
0: Um, I got to ask this, Dr. Ghanai Tabrizi. Did Gorbachev ever respond. (laughs) 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 All right, Uh, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Amari Tabrizi as we get into the perspective.
2: The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast.
0: Dr. Ghanai Tabrizi, has the creation and the 40-plus year duration of the Islamic regime in Iran ironically turn Iranians against religion?
1: Hmm. That's a very hard question to answer. Uh, um, I would say it has created new forms of religiosity and also anti-religion sentiments. I say new forms of religiosity because uh, um, you know there was a paradox in uh, in the Iranian constitution, the Islamic Republic constitution, that uh, you know it's uh, when you read it, they said that you know. Everyone is free to express his or her ideas, unless it contradicts the uh, basic uh, creeds of Islam. You know, right. <laughs> freedom within limits. But but then that created a problem. Who determines exactly. what the creeds of Islam is? Right, because Islam is like there are so many different possibilities. yeah, right? yeah. and that little thing that was a kind of a benign restriction on freedoms became a point of contention since the time of revolution to the present time, Because in their mind, when they were drafting the constitution, they wanted to write an Islamic constitution to say that, okay, this is Islamic constitution. And indeed, when they were writing it, this is in 1979, 1980, yeah, uh, many ayatollahs would say that. Uh, what are we doing? We, don't, I mean, we don't know how to write a constitution. Who are we to write sure. it? Wow! Yeah. Okay. I mean, these are like in the in the the minutes are you know in the archives you can look at these. Oh minutes and, wow, that is and fascinating. Then there's a very interesting exchange between the vice chair of the assembly, uh, constitutional assembly, and and this ayatollah. And, so this is just like few months after the revolution. This is Succeed. like six months after, election, six months after. Okay, okay. And uh, this is, uh, it goes back to the conversation we are having earlier that no one has a, c- a clue, <laughs> what are they doing? You know? Yeah, like, yeah. And then the vice chair of uh, of the assembly, Ayatollah Beheshti, who was a very, very key figure in post-revolutionary polity, who was assassinated in 1981. He says that, well, you ask these questions that we don't know what we are doing because you don't do your homework. Because We gave you the constitution of China. We gave you the constitution of Bulgaria. And we told you wherever you see Marxism, change it to Islam. And then we have a constitution. <laughs>
0: oh, my gosh. No.
1: <laughs> it, 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 I, I,
0: I, I feel rude asking this question, but I'll ask it.
1: Is this for real? <laughs> I, of course, it's for real. You know, oh, I've wow. I documented. I mean, you know, grab a copy of my first book, and it's all there. You know,
0: and uh, and then. So, first uh, of all, Bulgaria and China—they have ideological, sort ideological, of ideological and constitutions. That, you know,
1: and- we are another ideological state and we follow the model of other ideological states, you know, and uh, oh, wow. just change Marxism to Islam. We have an Islamic constitution, you know, what's the big deal, you know, and <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, then the Islam, uh, who defines Islam there? You know, is this Ayatollah Shariat Madari or Ayatollah Khomeini? Yeah. Is this Ayatollah Beheshti or, or X, Y, Z? And then you see that in the first, like 10, 15 years after the revolution, this incredible uh, let the thousand uh, flowers bloom kind of situation that everyone lays a claim on I am defining what Islam is, you know. There are all these lay intellectuals, there are uh, lawyers, there are journalists, there are everyone says that my interpretation of Islam is this and uh, I act according to my interpretation. So Islam from the point of reference becomes a point of contention, you know. Oh wow interesting and oh. uh, that's why i said that you know it generated new forms of religiosity and uh, and i don't think that a great majority i mean again you know this is i have not done a survey i'm not you know i don't know the numbers yeah but my sense from looking at the history of how these ideas unfolded in society I would say that uh, it's not the, the the fact that Iranians are becoming anti-religion. They're becoming, they're uh, subscribed to different forms of religiosity. And that different forms of religiosity involves um, uh, Sufi groups, and there are amazing books about this. You know, mm-hmm. Sufism became very popular in Iran. Poetry, mystical poetry, reading groups became very popular in Iran. So, of course, this is not what we have in mind when we think about religion. But these yeah. are different kinds of religious communism. This is a, one can say that this is different forms of a spirituality, that that continues to actually exist and in different circles grow. Maybe anti-state religion. It totally anti-state. Religion. Okay. Yeah. Totally anti-state religion,
0: you know. Let me ask another difficult question from you, and I promise it's the last one in our- in our, But uh, you told
1: me that you're gonna ask me easy questions, now you're
2: asking
0: <laughs> all hard questions. No, I no, say- uh, after yeah. you gave the uh, this uh, superb answer to the last question, I realized my next question may be just as difficult. Has this Islamic regime changed Iran's culture? And, and, I, and I asked this question, uh, in the context of the word happiness let me explain i shared a song with you a recent revolution i emailed it to you and in that song they talk about they literally talk about the word laughter desire for dancing kissing laughter are in that song this is really profound and in a way uh, sad that they really are asking for that now if you compare it with revolutionary songs from 1979. They talk about martyrdom, they talk about the revolutionary struggle and Allah and all of that. That's right. So has Iran's culture somewhat changed that people, I don't know, for for their prophets no longer wanna mourn their deaths, they now wanna celebrate birthdays?
1: Mm -hmm. I think the uh, revolution and four decades after the revolution, has uh, transformed Iranian society in so many different ways. One important way that it has changed Iranian culture is the way people understand themselves. I I would call that, you know, the creation of a hope-bearing conscious subject. Hope-bearing conscious subject subject that, that uh, I mean, people always say that, you know, see how the situation is so terrible in Iran that they're constantly protest. And I always say that, well, look at it from the other side. Look what an amazing society this is, that people are so conscious of who they are and what they want, and they constantly assert themselves. It's not oh, okay. the case, you know, I mean, yeah. it depends on from which side you're looking, you know. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean that the Iranian government is basically so horrible that is incomparable to other government, horrible governments around the world. There are so many. I mean, there's no competition there. There are a lot of horrible governments in the world. But why is it that Iranians are so up in arms, so to speak, to express what they want? to express who they are, to express what they need, to express that desire for life, to express that desire for well-being of uh, themselves. So something has changed, and that goes back to your question that have Iran, the revolution and the Islamic Republic transformed Iranians culturally. I say it transformed Iranians Consciously, you know, their consciousness is a different kind of consciousness. And I think that, you know, there's this great uh, historian, uh, E.P. Thompson, uh, Marxist historian, uh, British, uh, who uh, uh, had this concept of a moral economy. And he says that, you know, when you think about uh, bread riots, uh, bread riots, uh, uh, I mean, hunger... Existed in human history for always for, oh, as as long as we know. Yeah. But people most often people starve to death before they go protest. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And what is that moment that people actually go and protest? Yeah. You know? And that protest requires so many elements to be in place. Yeah. One thing is that form of consciousness that you consciousness. are a subject that you can step outside your home you can step outside your individual domain to become part of a collective to demand things that you desire right so
0: you're not and, saying this in defense of the regime you're talking more about the people no, and, I'm talking,
1: absolutely yeah 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 I got it's on. actually okay. it's actually you know it's, it's a critique of the regime of course yeah yeah of, of course you know um, and as i said you know they they're repressive they're authoritarian they kill yeah. people they arrest people they mm-hmm. uh they, they in in most cases with really incredible savagery you know yeah um, but if that happens in other places we don't see that often that people actually sustain their movements we don't see that often that people actually um uh, get together in collective forms to produce this kind of arts to produce those kinds of songs, you know, that it's, yeah. it's I mean, it happens, but it's, it's not that, um, often in Iran it like, it seems like now every two, three years, we have a new kind of protest, Yeah. Outburst. Expression of, of dissent, you know? Yeah. And the Iranians I and mean, that expression of dissent is, uh, the most important cultural transformation, I believe, that has happened since the 1979 revolution. And I do believe that it has to, it's in genealogy, it goes back to that 1979 revolution. That once once a nation, once a subject asserts itself and demands to be recognized and demands respect, then it's very, very hard to push that subject back into a box and say that, no, you do what, what I tell you to do. It's It doesn't happen. And this is what the revolution 79 has done. And that's sort of, you know, and again, it's a mystery of how that revolutionary culture is transferred generation after generation. This is like the third generation of post-revolutionary Iranians uh, and, um, but I think that's that's the important thing, you know. We have the uh, brutality of the regime, uh, but the brutality of the regime does not explain the culture of dissent, because we have that brutality everywhere in the world. Yeah, but we yeah, don't yeah, have That culture of dissent everywhere in the world.
0: That's 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 very intriguing, very interesting. Uh, Dr. Ghanayeb Tabrizi, thank you so much for educating me. And our listeners,
1: so this uh,
0: was fun. It was very fun. And uh, thank you so much. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history at history behind news we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish otherwise we're not affiliated with our guests we just think they teach us pretty cool history the history behind our news also Unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.